Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all again. How many of you have ever been, and don't raise your hand, I'll just say the illustration, but how many of you have ever been in a spot where you had to throw yourself at the mercy of someone and, and man, you were just hoping they would grant it to you? Well, I've definitely been in that spot. I remember years ago when I was just a young guy testing my parents probably a bit. And uh, I remember we were living in town and a neighbor a few yards away from us had just installed a new metal building and it looked like it would be the perfect target if I could only throw it that far, a rock, a ball, uh, anything, that would be amazing. And then I tried it and it worked and I launched a rock high in the air, it went three or four yards over and boom, hit the roof of that building. And it made this incredible sound and it was so much fun and I just commenced to doing it again and again without any concept that I'm just completely pulverizing this man's new storage building. And so, of course, my dad gets home from work and I've been having the time of my life and that man had gotten home from work apparently too. And when he came out into the yard, it even just kind of upped the requirements on my end a little bit because I assumed he had no concept of where this noise was coming from or what was inflicting this pain on his building. And so then I would just launch the rock, dive behind the bushes, and then I can't be seen. And then I would laugh as he was looking around to figure out where this is coming from. And I still was not calculating the ramifications of this idiotic idea. And so my dad rolls home from work, and I see that man coming down the road to meet up with my dad. He did not look pleased. And my initial moment, which was foolish, was denial. Never go there. It doesn't work out for you. Because all the evidence was clear, I was guilty as charged. The lack of rocks in our uh, back flower bed would bear evidence, and they all matched what was in his yard. And it was pretty clear I was guilty. Well, now I'm in a spot where I need to be, I'm thrown at the mercy of someone. And Dad sent me down the road to apologize to this man and then do whatever I needed to do to make it up, whether it's pick the rocks, buy a building, whatever this is going to be. Either way, I was terrified. And I begged dad, just if dad would go make that conversation for me, that would go a lot better for me probably. And of course, dad would not let me off the hook because this needed to be burned into my impressions, which now I'm 55 years old. This happened when I was nine and I'm still talking about it. So it, 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 the goal was met, okay? But I would have preferred to just be thrown into the mercy of my dad, not knowing what would happen to me at this, uh, at this man's house. And of course, he was firm but fair, and that was good. But the point I wanted to share with you about that is maybe we've all been in that spot where you've just been casting yourself at the mercy of someone and not knowing how that will be. How will they respond? Casting yourself at the mercy of a judge. Casting yourself at the mercy of God. And just putting yourself out there to say, Lord, here am I. Well, that's exactly what happens in our study of the book of Ezra. We have gone through so many pieces of this journey with a group of people who had been displaced because of sin and disciplined by God for their sin. God displaced them and put them in a different country. And, and now they've been given permission to go back to the homeland to rebuild things that have been broken down and now they've rebuilt and things look like on the outside all is well. But inside, things weren't well. The building of the temple of God is there. The sacrifices are being brought in and things that used to be are now restored in order. The problem is sin had crept in 
and it was a lot of compromisings and negotiations with people. But the fact is, these chosen people of God had been given clear instruction on how to, how to live as a called out people of God and not to give in to the things that were going on around them with the other nations around them. And instead, they, they began to embrace those things again. So after all of the discipline that has happened and all the mercy of God that they've experienced to this moment, they re-entered right back into the sin patterns again. And Ezra the priest, who is responsible for this group of people as, as the teacher, the shepherd of this group, throws himself before God. And just pleads with God. And that's where we are in our story today because I think any of us can come to that spot. As a matter of fact, all of us, if you came to the place of salvation and you're sitting here today knowing you are a Christ follower, at some point in your life, you threw yourself at the feet of Jesus for mercy. Because you recognized yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior and you knew you could not save yourself from your sin. You've tried everything to escape the, the snare of sin and you could not escape it. And then you recognize that because of sin you're separate from God because God's holy and we're not. And so we would have no rightful entry to be with God except for the fact that God Himself gave us a way to Himself through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so at some point, if you are a Christian today, you know that the moment you thrust yourself into the mercy of God and ask Him for forgiveness and His mercy and His grace. Well, that's where, where Ezra is at today. In Ezra chapter 9 and verse 5, we're going to begin this study today by looking at what are the keys to healing. If you, if you see yourself and understand our, our state of sin and lostness, or even as a saved person, where we know God, we've known the power of God, we've walked with God, and then we strayed away and we've done things again and again. And why do we keep doing all that? And now today we, we throw ourselves back in a position of humility before the Lord. Because the way up is always down with God. When we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He lifts us up. The way to have strength is to recognize weakness. But in our humanity, we're always wanting to resist against that. There's a pride in us that wants to be independent. We as Americans are maybe some of the worst on the planet because this whole nation was birthed in, on great principles and values, no question. But there's an independence in us that oftentimes we grow independent of the Lord. We push our children and we train them in independence and there's a lot of values in learning independence. But sometimes that, that independence esteem so high becomes independent of God as well, where we don't really see ourselves as a needful people. If I need something, I go earn it, I'll make it, I'll buy it, I'll figure it out. I don't need God. If something's broken, I fix it. If I'm broken, I'm, I'm going to find a way. We're going to go online and find remedies for how to fix ourselves. And so we're very independent and we're often apt to walk on our own power and strength, apart from God, apart from His Word, apart from prayer, and quite frankly, even as Christians, not experiencing the power of God because we trust in our own power. Well, this is where we are in Ezra, finding ourselves in the place of humility. Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, Ezra sees the sin, hears about it, and he's crushed. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. You see this laying down in front of God, falling on his knees. And I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. 
My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. You first see the humility of Ezra and seeing and hearing about the situation just falls before God pleading for mercy. But in this, he also uses a key word that I find interesting, and that is our iniquities. It's our sin. It's our problem. Though in Scripture, there's no evidence that Ezra participated in the sin that he's confessing. The problem was the people of the day had intermarried once again with the nations around them, now giving themselves over into idolatry again and worshiping false gods, because that's what all goes with the package with it. But that wasn't Ezra's story. But here's the point. Ezra included himself with it because he he sees himself as God's chosen people with the nation of Israel as a whole and there's sin in the camp. And so they're all guilty because they're all a family unit together. And so I think about that from our own, whether it's my own family, if there's sin in my family, whether it's with me or anyone else, it impacts our whole family. There's no one is excluded here. You all recognize this. If you're a part of an organization and there's sin in an organization, it impacts everybody in the organization. It's not just one. If there's a CEO of a company who's living in sin and rebellion, it impacts all of the employees. It's not just the CEO. Everybody gets hurt. I think about this in our own country. The sin that takes place in our own, in our own land. We all suffer the repercussions of sin that happens in our land. Though I'm not guilty per se of some of the things that others might be doing, but we may take it and repackage it. I think about how in our culture today, we worship the creation instead of the creator. We we take an altar, maybe, even altering God's creation to make it now what we want it to be, what we want it to look like, how we want to identify it. But it's not the way God created it to be, so now we're going to change it. Well, do we ever do that? Do I ever do that? What's the point? It's because I want you to identify me a certain way. Or, and so as a result, what do we do? We market things. We veneer things. And so what's really happening on the inside is not what you see on the outside. So are we all guilty of doing the same things? We just repackage it different. Yes, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we, we do the same things, just package different. But somehow we don't feel like we're part of it. And so here's... The risk we run is instead of bearing up the humility like Ezra and recognizing, you know, I may not have done this, but I've got my own issues. And together, collectively, we all throw ourselves to the place of God needing God's mercy. I don't want to be like the Pharisees that Jesus was pointing out and as he was training his disciples how to have an intimate relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. He pointed out an illustration with the Pharisees and how they pray. Because their prayer method was, Lord, I'm thankful I'm not a sinner like the rest of these people. I don't do this, I don't do that, and I don't do this. But instead, this is what I do. And Jesus pointed that out. That that is sin and rebellion and it's darkness. In James chapter 4, it's not in your notes, it won't be on the screen today, but James chapter 4 teaches this. That God gives more grace 
and he gives it to the humble. And here's what he says in James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, based on that truth, hold that thought. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, what does he do? Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your, your joy to gloom. Why? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And what this text is describing is not some big downer message. No, it's the gravity of sin and the, and the, the seriousness of sin often gets displaced. Because what we see, well, I'm better than them and not as bad as that. Or we begin to hide or minimize and come up with these ideas that, well, this is my problem, it's my secret sin problem, doesn't affect anybody else, so we don't need to talk about it. That's impossible. Because we are, as a church, as a family, you're a, we're a body, so where there's a struggle with one, there's a struggle with all. Everybody's stuff impacts each other. Whether in a home, in a community, in a church, there is no one gets left behind in this. And so the danger then becomes in hiding or minimizing or saying, well, it's, it's my problem, but it's not your problem. And, and so here's what God did. God foreseen this. This is so cool in Scripture. God foreseen sin happening, gave instruction to the nation of Israel of what do you do when this happens? If sin enters the camp, what do we do? And here was his answer. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. God had already made a promised provision for when sin happens, here's the pathway to restoration. And it was through humility. Throwing yourself at the feet of the Lord for His mercy. And then what does He do? He hears, He forgives, and He heals the land. Is that same provision true today for us? Yes. In fact, in the New Testament, what do we learn? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we have this same provision of the Lord today, just as Israel might have known if they strayed and got twisted up with other nations around them. Humility is the key. To humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and then He will lift you up. If you're not a Christian yet, let me just tell you, this is, this is the gateway to salvation. Because until you see yourself honestly as a person who is a sinner in need of a Savior and apart from God because of sin, that is the starting place. But the only way you come to that conclusion is through humility to recognize where you're really at. 
And sometimes that's the hardest resistance because we keep trying to find our own way to reconcile things. And well, I'll, I'll start doing this. I'll start going to church and I'll start reading or I'll start attending this study. I'll start doing all the things that Christian people do and that will kind of just mold me into that Christian realm. When in reality, we've coming to Lord Jesus Christ, confessing that He is Lord and forsaking the other lords of this world, it takes humility. Because it's really dethroning self off of that throne where we, we want to be our own king of our own empire and we dethrone that king to make, for King Jesus. The pathway to healing is humility. Ezra goes back in history and recounts some things in Ezra chapter 9 verse 7 and he gives us this glimpse into incremental sin. I think we would all recognize that when sin things happen in our lives, it didn't happen overnight. And most of us have used that phrase, we didn't get here overnight. Well, that is true. Since the days, verse, chapter 9 verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And he skipped to verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the people of the land, with their abominations which had filled it from one end of the, to the other, with their impurity. Verse 12. Now therefore, based on that reality, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, do not take their daughters to your sons, and never, never seek their peace or prosperity. And here's why. That you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And here's what God had instructed made it very plain. This land that you're going to go in, the promised land, this chunk of real estate, is a land that is full of corruption. And God had instructed them to go in and drive it, utterly drive it out. Don't leave anything behind. And that sounds real wicked and mean of God that He would want things driven out, but we have to remember, this is a people group on the planet at this moment who, according to the book of Deuteronomy, let's just size up the situation. The thoughts and thought of their heart are evil continually. They worship false gods, and I'm not talking just that they bow to a statue. This is offering their children through fire to the God of Moloch in their worship service, burning their children. But not only that, they were consulting with mediums and, and spirits and witchcraft and sorcery and all sorts of things which God told Israel have nothing to do with any of that stuff. You are a chosen people set apart from God for a special purpose. Don't engage with all that thing. And God told him, when you enter that land, drive all that out. That cannot exist where you exist. Because God said, I'm choosing a place and I'm going to put my name there. And God had a special plan for what is now known as the city of Jerusalem. And God was working a plan for that. But there was no space for this. And he warned them, never seek their peace. Never. The world peace options. Well, what is the peace that the world brings? Well, the manner of peace that the world likes to talk about is it's a false peace. 
It comes through compromising and manipulation and when it's, when it's convenient for either one of us or somebody can profit from it or we come to a mutual profit agreement for now, but it'll break and fall apart later, then we're no longer at peace with each other. Sometimes when we don't have peace of the soul, we medicate to try to come up with a temporary peace solution because I, I just need peace. And so then we find a temporary solution to that peace. That's world peace. That's worldly ways of doing things. There's the worldly way when it comes to relationships where it's mutual beneficial relationships seemingly that seems free of conflict, but not for long because once one is no longer a benefit to the other, then it's a relationship of conflict. It's the false peace that does not reconcile to God, but instead comes to a, a mechanism of how to get to God under our own way. God said, never seek their peace. Jesus said the same. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he told the disciples, he said to them, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it. Let not your heart be troubled nor be afraid. The type of peace that Jesus offered didn't look anything like what the world offered because it was all manipulative and compromising and it's only good for a season and then it falls apart we see this in the future we i talked about this some last week there's a coming a day when the antichrist who will be a messianic type figure will somehow draw a peace accord between israel and the nations around them and right now it's like impossible to even imagine such a thing but that day is coming. The scripture makes it clear. An anti-Christ figure will accomplish a peace accord, but it's false peace because he's the anti-Christ. And so during the middle of a tribulation time frame, that peace accord will be broken. And then a great tribulation will take place and this peace accord breaks when the Antichrist reveals then who he really is because he goes into the temple of God declaring himself to be God and he turns his back on Israel whom he made a treaty with and now will seek to execute every single one of them if possible. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that's coming. Jesus said it in Matthew 24. He called it the abomination of desolation. And he said, you pay attention. This day is on the horizon. It's coming. So we're watching what's happening in our world today, recognizing peace for Israel looks impossible. Yep, it does. Until someone brings false peace to it. God said, never seek the worldly prosperity around you. Well, we all have jobs and we all prosper through our jobs. And in fact, in the New Testament, we are taught to tithe and give to God's work according to how he prospers us. So is it violating the Bible that we have money in our pocket? We have homes and cars? And no, that's not the point. It's when you seek after that prosperity of the world. And Well, what does that even look like? It's this obsession with money or it's believing that somehow gain is godlier, more godly. The more you have, the more godly you must be. And it's somehow making this prosperity become the focal point of life. When God describes prosperity as you can prosper, not in economics, but you know what it looks like when a church prospers? When a church prospers, it's not the measuring stick of how much money is in the savings account. Matter of fact, I wouldn't really consider that a great win. 
A church prospers when the advancement of the gospel and the influence of relationships in a community and people are seeing, coming to know Jesus and, and Jesus is glorified through the local church. Now that's a church prospering. A family that's prospering is not because of the house they live in and the cars they drive. That's not the prosperity. It's the family that, that loves and cares and, and deeply takes care of one another. It's, it's the, the prosperity that doesn't look like what our world looks like. And God told them, never seek their prosperity. Well, Israel, they failed in this. And Ezra's calling to recount this whole sequence of scene, dating all the way back into Israel's history when they went into this promised land. And instead of driving out all the inhabitants, they subdued them. There's a difference. When you subdue something, it means you've basically dominated it and it goes into hiding and basically sits and rests until it's regained strength and has time to multiply. So they subdued the nations around them and even brought them into taxation and tribute to where the people had to pay and serve as their servants. However, that's not what they were told. So these nations around them basically hunker down and sit idle until they multiply. And then they begin to stand up their idols and their temples and their statues and all their high places. And now Israel begins to intermarry with all of the nations around them, exactly what God told them not to do. And God sent them prophets one after the other and said, whoa, time out. Well, this is exactly opposite of what God has said the whole time. What are you doing? And they disregarded the prophets. So what would God do? Repeatedly through the Old Testament, we read this where the cycles of sin would happen and they would, people would sin against God. God would bring in another nation to discipline the nation. Then they would repent and say, Oh God, I'm so sorry. We see where we've blown it again and please restore us back. And God would raise up a judge, a king, to help deliver them from their enemies. And we would get on this cycle again and again. Well, we're back at it again? After all that has happened? We're doing this again? I think about where we are today. You take this text from Ezra chapter 9 and the very words that Ezra prays and it lays right on top of Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament for us. That describes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 that he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedient. The according to's are very important here. The world operates according to the prince of the power of the air. He runs the show and works the kingdoms and knows how to lure mankind. He's been doing it very efficiently since Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Some form of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life, it works on all of mankind. So he's constantly working that thing throughout the nations, all over. That's a, the course of the world running a course according to the, the prince of the power of the air. In verse 3 of this said that among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. 
That is all of us, no one excluded, all of us in our lost condition walked according to the course of the world, which was contrary to the way of God. Whatever we could conjure up in our mind and in our flesh, that's what we were going to do. And it was totally going the wrong direction. Now, God's at a spot where, what does he do with this? As sinful people on this planet, you can either just eliminate them, but he didn't do that. Out of his incredible love for us, he did not choose to do that. And this is what we have to see of watching how Ezra now pleads with God for his grace and for his mercy in light of their circumstance. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 8, And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a peg in his holy place, and that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Look at what grace does. God, by His grace, He gives something here. He extends the hand of grace and now provides a way of escape from bondage. He gives a peg in the holy place. Well, you think about our Savior took the nails in His hands and the nail in His feet. He is the nail in the holy place. Our God enlightened our eyes. We were, according to Scripture, we were blind and in darkness. But God then enlightened our eyes so we can see what is true and what is real. We transferred from darkness into light. And God gave us a revival that where we were dead in trespasses and sin and now made us alive. We are together with Christ Jesus. By what? His grace. And not only His grace, He extended His mercy. Well, what's the difference? The grace is a gift that is given by God. Here, receive. Mercy is God holding back the judgment that He rightfully should give and instead dispenses grace. It's what mercy does. You throw yourself at the feet, begging for mercy. Some of you have done those wrestling moves, you know, with somebody, and it's the mercy game. And you get them into this submission hold where it's pure pain. And finally they scream mercy. Well, if you don't give them mercy, you can snap their arm like a twig. But you give them mercy and let them back up again. That's why they call it mercy. The mercy game. Well, here's what Ezra's praying for. Ezra 9. For we were slaves... Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And he said, this is his recall of this, in verse 13, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, that's mercy, and have given us such a deliverance as this. Should we break again your commandments and join in marriage with people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? So here's Ezra's call. Lord, you have given us grace. You've extended your mercy. By this grace, you gave us a way to escape. We have this nail a stake in the ground of our salvation and security of it. Reminds me of that farmer guy that always struggled with assurance of salvation and made mistakes and, and would wonder, man, maybe this is the sin that sent me out the door. 
And maybe I don't even belong to God. And he was struggling with this. And finally, a man came alongside of him and showed him in Scripture the assurance of salvation. So in one of those moments where he was like, you know what? I know when I gave my life to Christ. And he went out behind his barn and drove a stake in the ground. And that stake represented something for him because every time he struggled and felt like he was straying from God, he could go out behind the barn and there's that stake. And he would bow down on a knee and grab hold of that stake and say, Lord, I remember the day I put my faith and trust in you and you put a nail in this place and reminded me that I belong to you. And even though right now I've made a lot of stupid mistakes and I feel like I'm a million miles from you, I know I belong to you and I know I'm saved. And God has given us this stake in the ground to enlighten our eyes, to open our blind eyes and give us revival. But not only that, in His mercy, He did not choose to forsake us. Instead, He pursued us in extended mercy. And in this very thing, by His grace and His mercy, what Ezra says, in the sight of all the kings of the world, has been an incredible testimony of the grace of God. And you gave us a revival where once was dead is now alive. And, and then you repaired and, and took the things that were broken and put them back together again. And then you gave us a wall, a, a security inside of this wall. You go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and the words look so similar. In verse 4, But God, in light of us walking according to the course of the world, the flesh, the devil. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love wherewith He loved us. Remember what He told Israel, the nation? I did not choose you because you were greater in number than all the nations. I chose you because you, I love you. That's why. And for no other reason. Because I love you. And for God's great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That in the ages to come, here's the testimony of grace, for the ages to come in front of the kings of the world, for all of glory to see this, that the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What an incredible testimony as trophies of grace that in spite of all of our sin and foolishness and all of the things that we've done in this world, and yet God withheld judgment we rightfully deserve, instead gave His only begotten Son to pay our sin debt in full, who did no sin but took our sin upon Himself that we might be set free free from sin to serve God and have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And what an incredible display of love, of grace, of kindness that God has revealed in us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and God, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. God's designed it from the beginning. that He, he called you into salvation. And those who respond to His, his Word, that respond to the Spirit moving in your life, calling you into a relationship, God had a plan for you. And His plan is that created in Christ, He has work for you to do in His kingdom. And in that work in His kingdom, it multiplies His kingdom unto us. No, unto the glory of the Son. 
He's the one who gets all the credit. He's the one who saved you. He empowered you. He's the one who's gifted you. He's done everything for you. And so he's the one who gets all the glory. But we are his workmanship where he does this work through us. And Ezra then comes back. In chapter 9, verse 15, he says, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra saw the sin and just brokenness and laid down before the Lord pleading for mercy and grace. And he said, no one can stand. But let me just tell you, as a Christ follower today, in Christ Jesus, we stand. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 summarizes everything we've talked about. Therefore, having been justified by faith, God declares me righteous. That's what justified means. God declares me righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus, not on my righteousness, but on His righteousness. God has justified me by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's real peace. That's not this false worldly peace. This is peace with God. Well, how in the world could we ever as sinners have peace with the Creator whom we have violated? We've trespassed against every ordinance of God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He is the reconciler, reconciling the Father with us. And through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's the grace of God in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. It's the glory of God. I want you to stand to your feet. If you would, please. Ask our worship team to come back to the stage. Please bow your head with me, if you will. As we recount what we just read, as it was with Ezra, with a bowed head before the Lord, in humility, this is a great moment in our life to restore fellowship with the Lord or begin a relationship with God. If there's things undone right now with the Lord, there's sin to be confessed, we know the truth. If we come into agreement with God about sin and what is sin in our lives, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If this morning you're not sure about being a Christian, maybe you've been pursuing, maybe you've been asking questions, and maybe today's the day that God's enlightened your heart and your mind and your eyes so you can see, and you say, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need a Savior, what do I do now? We are in the right position. With a head bowed before the Lord, in humility, confessing, I know I'm a Savior or a sinner, and I know I need a Savior, and I can't save myself. Well, who can? 
If you can't do it, who can? Jesus, the Son of God, who came to this planet on purpose to save the lost. All of us are lost because of sin. But Jesus came and paid our sin debt in full, yours and mine. When we confess that He is Lord, believing that He died and and that He rose again, and by His victory over the cross, and victory over sin, and victory over death, He is the only one then, the only one qualified to save you from sin and give eternal life. He's the only one. Do you trust Him? Do you believe Him? And have you asked Him to be your Lord and Savior? As a people, we stand with our head bowed in humility before the Lord. But we also stand, as it is stated in the book of Ezra in his prayer, that as we stand in his grace, we stand rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will sing a song of celebration and rejoicing in the Lord our God. Father, I pray this morning, knowing that you meet us in our spot, right where we are right now, you see every detail of our life, and you expose that which needs reconciliation, and you affirm that which is right and true. And I pray, Lord, that our, our walk with you today would be sweeter and drawn closer than ever before. I pray for those that need to receive Christ, that right now there would be just the, the faith and they would trust you and they would put their faith in, in you, Lord, believing that you are the one that can save them. And Father, thank you. I can't thank you enough for your grace. For your great love that you love us. And for the mercy, Lord, that you extend. And that, Lord, today we get to stand and celebrate for the best way we know how, Lord, just to shout and sing a praise to our God. For the glory of God. Lord, may we be faithful as your workmen in this world to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus with people we know that they may be set free from sin to serve you as well. Dear Father, I pray that you would embolden us and empower us this week for your purpose, your mission. Thank you, Lord, for your great love with whether you love us. We praise you in Jesus' name today for this. Amen.